best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everybody. Welcome to the August edition of Beers with the Blue Owl Space Institute of Science. And welcome, Bailey, in the background. <laughs> this is the uh, podcast of the science, thoughts, and philosophies of those associated with our institute. And today, we have the great honor of having Dr. Sean Domagal-Goldman of the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, who will give us a fantastic talk on the Mars Science Laboratory. That is landing in a few days, but before that, uh, Mark Clare will be introducing this month's beverage. And the slides for this presentation are on bmsis.org slash podcast. Hello, everybody, and on the eve of this esteemed, uh, esteemed uh, week of Mars exploration, I thought I would introduce you to the Bière de Mars from the New Belgian Brewery. Uh, which is in Colorado now. Uh, they, so they make a, a famous beer that probably a lot of people have had, Fat Tire. But their their beer de Mars is a, uh, a seasonal beer that they release in the spring. It has a celestial orange hue to it, uh, and is also really nice and, and citrusy uh, with earthy tones of ripe mango and lemon. Verbana. It uh, is a very wonderful one. And if you can uh, get it this week, I found they have a very cool thing on their website. You can go to the New Belgium website and find their libation location. You can click on Beer to Mars and uh, your own address and decide whether you want to find a beer within biking distance or road trip distance. And it'll tell you where you can go enjoy a Beer to Mars uh, today or sometime this week uh, in honor of the. Um, Upcoming landing of the Mars Science Laboratory and successful science mission. So um, with that said, I'm going to introduce uh, Sean Dommel Goldman, the speaker today. Uh, he's had an esteemed career starting at the University of Rochester, went to Penn State uh, for grad school where he worked with Jim Casting. Uh, for a first postdoc, went to the Virtual Planetary Laboratory uh, in Seattle uh, where he was a, a colleague of mine and a good friend and baseball lover there as well. Uh, he did a second postdoc at NASA headquarters, um, uh, doing uh, moving both in science and in the science uh, communication uh, and policy, where he did such cool things as the, um, uh, the big FameLab Science Festival that a lot of us were at at uh, ABSICON and recently in the UK. Uh, and now, uh, just recently in the last couple months, he's gotten a permanent job at the Goddard Space Flight Center, where he is a research scientist uh, and is uh, there. We're all excited to welcome back to the realm of science and uh, hear all about uh, what was the original title of this talk. I think it's <laughs> changed a little bit, but uh, if you could actually uh, see me right now, you all would know exactly uh, what I was doing. As I introduced, YMSL, YMSL. All right, go for it, Sean. Thank you, Mark. That was a fantastic introduction, both to a wonderful beer and something that I am very, very excited to talk about, which is uh, MSL and, and why 
we're flying this particular mission and hopefully landing it safely on Mars on Monday. Um, if you are listening to this in uh, the interwebs after I give the talk, we will have slides up. I suggest you log in and follow along with them because uh, I've got lots of pretty pictures that I'm going to show people. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the history of water on Mars. Um, because for a while, Mars has had, or, or NASA and, and Mars explorers all over the world, have had a mantra of follow the water that we've been living by. And um, based on that, what we've been doing is we've been looking for water. We've been looking for water in all its forms uh, and throughout the history of the Red Planet. Um, and, and that's been a very, very successful strategy. So I'm, I'm first going to go over an overview of that. And then I'm going to talk about what we've learned from that and where MSL uh, lands in that context. And the first thing to know about water on Mars is we found it. We found it uh, in almost all times and in almost all phases and in almost all places. Um, we have found it at the surface. and, and Well, I should say we found ice water, the, 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 the solid version of water, very close to the surface. And we've also found evidence of liquid water uh, near the surface in modern times. And we found evidence for extensive surface water and probably standing surface water throughout the deep history of Mars. And I'm going to apologize to those of you that are online right now. I'm, I'm trying Google Docs PowerPoint uh, program or PowerPoint equivalent uh, today for the first time. And I don't think my animations are working quite perfectly. So the first few slides are going to be a little bumpy for those of you that are live, but I promise I'll fix these before we post them on the web for those of you watching in retrospect. Uh, basically, we've seen a lot of different types of features on Mars. And if you're looking at the first slide, uh, once I've got this fixed, what you'll see is that we've seen evidence. Whenever we look for water, we we, we sort of have sort of have seen it. Um, we've seen evidence of water uh, uh, that that comes in the form of gullies, deep carved features that almost certainly were carved up by water. These were the first things that we saw when we did flybys of Mars. We then got higher detailed pictures of Mars, and we saw dendritic forms. These dendritic forms were evidence not just that water was flowing on the surface at one point in, the Mar in Mars' history, but also that there was probably some sort of rainfall because there were these sort of dendritic patterns, and you'll be able to see those in, in the images once I fix this. There's, there's these dendritic patterns that form on Mars, and those suggest that there was rainfall at some point in Mars' past. We also see, uh, more recently, valleys carved out in this, on the sides of craters and the like, or I should say not, uh, there's these little gullies uh, that are carved out at the rims of craters, and these are probably more recent evidence of water uh, uh, flowing on the surface, at least for a very short amount of time. We've also seen evidence of ice in the subsurface. We can fly and, and water on the surface. When we fly overhead uh, uh, over Mars, we can see evidence that uh, there were minerals laid down at one point in Mars's history that had to have had water uh, present on the surface for those minerals to have been formed. In other words, we see the chemical traces of past water on the surface. We also see the chemical traces of present water on the surface. If you fly over Mars and you have a particular instrument that looks for the hydrogen atoms, remember water is H2O, if you look for those H's in that chemical formula, you see a lot of those hydrogen atoms in the subsurface of Mars if you look down at Mars from above. And then finally, if you dig around on the surface, you see evidence. You see the same minerals we saw from orbit. And if you, at one point with the Phoenix Lander in 2008, we literally dug up some ice and launched it 
melt and, uh, and sublimate. Sublimate is what ice does when it evaporates straight into a gaseous form. We watched it melt and sublimate pretty much right in front of our eyes. You, we took a picture one day. We took a picture four Martian days later. And whatever shiny substance was there when we took the first picture was gone by the time we took the second picture. And, and the reflectivity of that, that substance and the, the way it disappeared tells us that that was probably solid water ice. So in other words, we found lots and lots of, of or we've found water lots and lots of times. And, and, you know, there's these jokes about, oh, you know, NASA found or ESA found water on Mars again, big deal. But each one of these is in their own right a big deal because it's been water in a new place or a new time or a new phase. Or sometimes it's been something that we already suspected based on an orbital measurement, but we've confirmed by literally getting our robotic hands dirty at the surface. Uh, and so for those of you uh, following along, what you can do is you can, you can skip to uh, the second slide in this, which should say 2011 at the bottom. And if you're trying to follow along, uh, uh, you know, in, on, after the fact, the, the, you should also go there. So um, basically what's, what, what, you, what we saw in 2011 was something new and very exciting. This is not related to MSL. I'm only mentioning it in the context of this, this follow the water strategy. We had an orbiter, an orbital asset that repeatedly went over the same part of Mars uh, over and over and over again over multiple seasons and multiple years. And if you advance through the next few slides at, say, 2011 in the bottom right, what you'll see is the colors changing uh, as you go through these slides. I think there's six in total. And there's a little marker on the top in yellow that shows you what season it is on Mars. And the cool thing is you'll see not just the colors changing, but you'll see these streaks start to form on the surface. And these streaks, we think, uh, are caused by water that's getting up to the surface and trickling out. Now, this is not a place that's very easy to get to. It's actually very difficult to get to the, the locations where we saw this seasonal water upwelling, or what we think is seasonal water upwelling. So MSL is not going there. Uh, a future mission perhaps could if we improve some of our technologies for entry, descent, and landing uh, further than, than even in what MSL has. And, and we could talk about that in the Q&A period if, if people want. But that, th this is really exciting because this, the, the, these streaks, if they are associated with water, means we could send a rover or even a lander down to the surface at those locations and scoop up something that is at least some small percentage liquid water. And for those of you that are astrobiologists, you know that water is essential to life. Um, and I, I should say that for those of you that, if you're, you know, if you're a non-scientist listening to this, the reason we followed the water, the reason we keep looking for water in all these places and phases and times, is because everywhere we've gone on Earth, the planet Earth, where we've looked for life, we find it so long as there's some liquid water available, at least in a microenvironment. So even if you go to the driest places on Earth, and Mark Clare has done this, he's gone to the Atacama Desert, and if you, if you find a little bit of water somewhere uh, on the driest places, the coldest places, um, the most harsh environments on Earth, you, if you find a little bit of liquid water, you find life. And, and based on that, we think life, not only is water essential to life, but it might be the one thing you need to really get life off the ground. So the next slide after these 2011 ones, is it's, it's, I only have a few word slides. They're right in a row. This is just a summary of what I've said. We found water. Uh, and so if, you, if, if you're following along, the slide I'm on is what have we learned by following the water? Um, there's a history of water at the surface, uh, at or, or, or very close to the surface of Mars. 
The evidence for water um, at or near the surface for, for ancient times includes these gullies and these dendritic networks that are basically streams uh, that, that are caused by rainfall and ancient mineral deposits. Uh, which and and actually beyond the ancient mineral deposits, I should also point out we also see these sort of geological bed forms, these stratigraphic layers that are also indicative uh, from a from a geologist standpoint, from a sedimentological standpoint, that there was standing water or very slowly moving water at one point on the Martian surface. Uh, more modern times, we have evidence that water is coming up at least periodically, going onto the surface and and and, and losing itself uh, to vapor very rapidly, but repeatedly and maybe seasonally uh, reaching the surface of Mars. Um, what do we learn after following the water? What do we want to do next is another way to think of this next slide. Well, we have this evidence that Mars used to have all standing water. You know, there, there used to be significant amounts of water on the surface, a lot more than there is today. There's almost none. Uh, well, actually, you can't take a picture of water on the surface today. Those streaks I showed you are the closest things we have to a picture of water on the surface. Uh, and those are, at best, really moist soils. They're, it's not, you know, a lake or a stream. It's just some wet stuff that's near the surface. Think, like, mud. Mud is, like, the wettest it gets on Mars. But we used to think it was a lot wetter. What happened? Why did that transition occur? When did it occur? Um, how did it occur? What was the process that through which Mars lost the surface water? These are, this is the, these are the next questions one would want to answer when it comes to uh, the history of water on Mars or following the water. The next question is uh, an astrobiological one. If life needs water, what else does it need? And does Mars have those other things? And did it ever have those things? And, you know, most importantly, we're all organic uh, and not in the grocery aisle sense. We're all made of reduced carbon. That's what a scientist means when they say organic material. Uh, does Mars have organic material? Can organic material survive at the surface? Um, there have been measurements in the past by the Viking lander that suggests that there's no organics at the surface of Mars. But we now know, based on chemistry done by the Phoenix lander uh, more, you know, in the last decade, that the Viking measurements that, that concluded that there was no organic material may have been biased by other chemicals in the soils on Mars, uh, specifically something called perchlorates. If you heat up perchlorates and organics, at the same time, they'll react with each other and destroy each other, which means that any organics that were in the Martian soil would be destroyed if you heated the soil up. And the, Viking, the way Viking analyzed the Martian soils for organics, before it analyzed them, it had to heat those soils up to introduce them into the scientific apparatus, which means that if it had the perchlorates and organics, and the perchlorates we know are at least on some places on Mars because Phoenix detected them, well, if it also had the organics and that at the, at the landing site for Viking, Viking would not have been able to detect any organics that were present. So, you know, even though we've got this negative result, there may be organics on the surface of Mars today at much higher concentrations than we ever thought possible, uh, you know, prior to 10 years ago. There are also, I shouldn't say ever, between uh, Viking and Phoenix, uh, we could have much higher concentrations than we thought before, but in the time frame between Viking and Phoenix. And even if Viking's measurements were accurate, there was a lower limit to the detectability of organics that Viking had. And so one would want to ask, are there any organics at all at very, very low concentrations Viking could not detect, uh, or are they completely absent from Mars? And if they are completely absent, what is the cause? Is it radiation? Is it oxidation? What is destroying the organics on Mars if they're absent? 
Um, another question, what, do you ha- what energy sources do you have? You have some sunlight, less than the Earth, but you still have some. Are there chemical sources for energy? Are there other nutrients that you might need uh, to, for, for life to, to, to prosper on Mars? Uh, and then finally, what is the radiation environment on Mars? Uh, we know that Mars has a fairly thin atmosphere compared to, a very thin atmosphere compared to Earth. So a lot more radiation gets through the atmosphere. It doesn't have an active geodynamo, or in other words, it doesn't have a magnetic field, which is another way that we on Earth get shielded from radiation. So what are the effects of these of the increased radiation at the surface, both potentially for life and potentially for those organic materials? And and the last thing is uh, this is also a mission, MSL slash Curiosity. Well. I'll, I'll talk about MSL in the next slide. The, the other thing is when, when we're asking questions about life, that's not just something that scientists are interested in and, and only scientists. Um, this is also something that the astronaut community and the human spaceflight community should and is interested in. They want to know what, how, you know what kind of radiation will our astronauts get hit with if they're living on the surface of Mars? What types of organics are present on Mars and what types of nutrients are present at the surface that we could use if we're building some sort of Martian greenhouse? Um, Things like this are important not just for scientific reasons but also for human exploration reasons. So then the next slide, and I promise, I'm I'm 90% sure this is my last word slide, but I was literally making these as the my talk started, so I can't promise I know everything that's in here off the top of my head. So the next slide is MSL Curiosity Science Goals, and these are highly tied to the questions on the last slide, the things what we'd want to learn next. MS, so, and, and for those that aren't familiar with missions or, or the way that, that spaceflight works, when you design a mission, you have specific science goals, and you design the mission around meeting those goals, find, find, you know, answering these questions. And addressing these issues. And if you don't do that, you, you kind of consider your mission a failure. And if you do do that, you consider your mission a success. These are the benchmarks that we use to judge ourselves. And, and for MSL or Curiosity, the, these are shown on this slide that says MSL slash Curiosity Science Goals. Uh, it's slide 10 on my current version of, of this. So the first is determine the mineralogical composition of the Martian surface and near-surface geological materials. We want to know what minerals are present on Mars. Very simple and straightforward, and we're, we're going to have instruments to do that. Two, attempt to detect chemical building blocks of life. We want to know if the stuff that life is made out of and the stuff that can lead to life being started from non-life uh, is present on Mars right now. And we have instruments for that. Uh, three, interpret the processes that have formed and modified rocks and soils. So this isn't just saying what, what minerals are present, what landforms are present, but what are the processes? that led to the formation of the minerals, the rocks, and the, the, the features, the geological features we see on Mars. Four, assess long timescale Martian atmospheric evolution processes. So this is, we want to have some semblance of an idea of not just what happened at one point in time and not just what's happening now, but what has happened to Mars's atmosphere over its entire history of evolution, or as, at least as much of it as we can get to uh, through its rock record and sedimentological record. Five, determine present state distribution and cycling of water uh, and carbon dioxide. Water, we, we're following it. We want to, f- you know, finally get those, those last set of questions answered about why it disappeared and when and how it disappeared. And carbon dioxide is very important, especially in a historical context, because if Mars ever did have water, it probably had more of an atmosphere. And it probably had a greater greenhouse effect that allowed that liquid water to be stable at the surface. And the best candidate to provide that extra warming and that extra atmospheric thickness is carbon dioxide. 
The modern day Martian atmosphere is mostly car it's predominantly carbon dioxide, and the ancient atmosphere might have been the same. So what is the history of both water and carbon dioxide? And and there also is recognition there that those two molecules are fundamentally linked. The more CO2, more carbon dioxide you have in the atmosphere, the more water you can have on the surface. And the warmer it is, actually, the more water you get in the atmosphere. And the warmer it is, the more carbon dioxide you remove from ice caps at the poles, and that can get into the atmosphere. So these things, there's a lot of feedback loops here that tie water and carbon dioxide together. And then lastly, characterize the broad spectrum of surface radiation, including galactic radiation, cosmic radiation, solar proton events, and secondary neutrons. This is pretty self-explanatory. We want to know how much of the bad radiation stuff is getting to the surface, both for bacteria and for uh, future human colonization or exploration. Okay, next slide. Carl Sagan, Viking lander. Uh, when the Viking, so Viking lander was the first astrobiology mission. It landed on Mars. It looked for organics. It looked for life. Uh, and it came up with a set of conflicting results. And I think after the Phoenix Landers uh, experiments, which I talked about a few minutes ago, I think the best way to characterize Viking is that it had a suite of results that, on, that, that each one independently was inconclusive and as a suite were inconclusive, especially when taken in context of the other results and the other things we know about Mars. I don't think you can rule out the presence of life on Mars based on Viking's results. I might have said that you could have 10 years ago, but in my opinion, that's changed with what Phoenix has done. On the other hand, <clears throat> I don't think you can use the, the results from Viking to say that life is present on Mars and that we've detected it. I think each of those experiments is, is at best inconclusive. And, and now, that, there, there's a lesson there, which is that we, we set the Viking lander down on Mars and jumped right to looking for biology. And I think the approach that we've taken since then is to be more strategic in, in developing a context for our astrobiological investigations. And that's the difference between what Viking did when it was just landing on the surface, let's look for, look for some bugs, versus what NASA's been doing the last 10 or 20 years, following the water, finding out the history of habitability, at least in terms of water at the surface, and now following that up with a rover that's going to look at other aspects of habitability. And then in the future, once we further establish the habitability context, then maybe doing the life search experiments again. So this, is the, this, this next slide is the Mars Exploration Program, an integrated strategic program. This shows that there's been this, uh, this strategic approach to gradually answering new, different questions about Mars. And a lot of these are driven by astro astrobiology and the search for life, but none of these are the direct search for life. They're all about establishing a context for the possibility that life could be present or could have been present in the past on, on Mars. And one thing you'll notice is that the, the top things are all orbiter, orbiting assets, as we might call them, and the bottom things that are shown on the surface were on the surface either as rovers or landers. And one thing that we've done is we've, uh, just from an engineering standpoint, we've, we've, or a systems engineering standpoint, we've alternated between the landers and, and the orbiters. And part of the reason for that is the orbiters can be used to relay data from the landers back to Earth. And it can also be used to help um, drive uh, the next mission. You might look for a particular mineral on the surface before you deter determine the next rover or the next lander's landing site. And we've done that. So there's this interplay between the questions that are being addressed on the ground and the questions we can uh, 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 basically helping us focus where we're going to address those questions by using the orbiting assets. 
Um, so next slide, this is a picture of the rover family. Uh, the Mars Pathfinder, which landed in the late 90s, is shown on the bottom of this picture next to a rock and two people for scale. Uh, next to that, or just above that, is one of a uh, replica of one of the MER rovers, the Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, uh, which are the one of the most. I think they've got to be one of the greatest engineering feats in the history of humanity. Uh, these are rovers that were supposed to last for you know on the scale of months, and uh, they're one of them lasted for almost a decade, and the other one has is is basically uh, been up there for three thousand days and and is still running. Uh, and then on the right, the star of the show for the next few years, and s certainly for the next week, MSL slash Curiosity. And you can see that uh, as we've gone from Pathfinder to Mer to Curiosity, we've gotten larger. Uh, the next slide, MSL Curiosity Rover, rover Final Testing at JPL. I don't have anything scientific to say about this other than that it's really awesome to look at this beauty uh, fully constructed and ready to move on to its launch pad. Uh, next slide, it says rover closeout on the bottom right. This is what the rover looks like when it's uh, getting ready to be placed in its various aeroshells and rockets and stuff like that. It's all, this is uh, basically everything but the bow uh, wrapped on top of it, packaged up and getting ready for launch. Uh, next slide, MSL Curiosity Path to Launch. This is the sequence of then taking that folded up uh, packaged rover uh, and, pa and then further packaging it in the things that uh, are going to uh, uh, protect it from the harsh entry, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, and that will help it land safely on Mars, and then uh, after that, packing it up inside a rocket, which then launched from Cape Canaveral uh, basically last Thanksgiving weekend, and I was there on, on hand to see it. It's the first rocket launch I've ever seen, and uh, it was a sight to see. I recommend to anyone listening this that if you ever have the chance to watch a future mission launch, you do so, because it's awesome. Okay, next slide, and the next slide is a video, and hopefully it'll play. Uh, it's playing for me, and I'm going to just try to talk about this a little bit as it's playing. So Mars, once it, or MSL, once it gets to Mars, it's going to um, detach uh, from from uh, the the rockets that got it there and guided it there, and it's going to hit the atmosphere. And you'll see these little jets squirting out the back. Those are intentional. This thing is not falling at whim. It is basically flying intelligently or, or, or uh, artificially with artificial intelligence through the atmosphere to hit a precise landing spot. Uh, a parachute's going to open, and then the back shell's going to be uh, uh, released once it slow the parachute slows it as much as it can. And then retro rockets are going to fire. We are going to hover over the surface of Mars, and this is the part that terrifies everybody. We are going to lower the rover via cables onto the surface. And then the hovercraft, which is called a sky crane, is going to detach itself and fly a safe distance away so it doesn't land on the thing. It just safely landed on Mars. And then the rover gets to work. Uh, it's going to start driving around the surface. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's going to first do a series of health checks before it starts driving around the surface. But eventually, it'll start exploring its uh, local environment and sending back some wonderful scientific data. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the instruments, basically, for the rest of this, if I can get on to the next slide. Okay, I am. So... Um, a lot of people ask, they see the video I just, I just you know, displayed, and they say, why in the world would you do that? Why would you hover over the surface of Mars and lower a you know, multi-billion dollar rover slowly via cables? That seems insane. Well, the reason, there's a few reasons. One of the reasons we do that, and it's, it's also why there were those jets coming out the, uh, the backside of the rover as it was 
uh, arrow breaking is we want to answer science questions that require us to have a very tight landing ellipse. In other words, we want to have a lot of control over where this rover lands, and we want to have more control than we've ever had before. And the EDL system, the Entry, Descent, and Landing System, and if you hear that acronym EDL, that's what it stands for, that system was designed so that we can have a very accurate location that we, that we place our awesome science toolkit on. And, and the one that we chose was, there was so this, this image here on the advantage of guided entry, uh, this shows the uh, landing ellipse in black for the two Opportunity and Spirit rovers, the two Mars exploration rovers, one of which is still going on. Uh, and then the red ellipse inside that black ellipse is the one for the Curiosity rover that's going to land on Monday. And you can see if we had the black ellipse, it would be going over a lot of rough terrain, which means we really wouldn't be able to land at this particular landing site, okay? We, we, we needed this tighter landing ellipse in red to be able to explore um, the, the, the region where Curiosity is going to land. Now, uh, the next slide just shows a, a further close-up of that. The actual site uh, is shown uh, the two slides later on a slide titled Curiosity Landing Site Gale Crater. Gale Crater is where we're landing, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at, okay? So remember... If I, if I were to say there are two big, well, I'd say there are, there are probably three really major questions that, that MSL is addressing, addressing. The first is, what is the history of water on Mars? And, and preferably, we'd like to be able to look at both the modern and the ancient rocks in addressing that question. The second question is, what is the chemical inventory as it relates to habitability on Mars? And then the third is, what's the radiation environment? Now, that third question, the radiation environment, you can get at just about anywhere on the surface. But those first two questions, what, what, is the, uh, what, what is the chemical inventory and what is the water history of Earth, uh, I'm sorry, of Mars, those require landing sites that, that are tailored to those questions. Okay? And now here's another example of how we've used orbital assets to steer us towards a specific landing site. At Gale Crater, and, and on this image, you'll see that there's something called a fan and layered hard rock next to it with fresh craters. Okay? That's important. Because that what we think is it's not a fan like you know I'm a big fan of the Cubs or something like I should turn on because I'm overheating in this swampy DC weather. This is a fan that we think was laid down, uh, potentially laid down by flowing water in the ancient history of Mars. And so if you want to get at a place where there could have been deposits associated with that water flow, you want to go someplace like this fan. Um, the, the, the fresh craters are going to help you because it's going to help you uh, essentially excavate down into that surface, down into the, those fan deposits. And the layered hard rock is going to help us because it's going to give us some context for those deposits. Now, if, uh, if you look below that, you see clays. These clays probably required some sort of uh, water presence to be formed on the surface of Mars. And again, these things are all, are, are, are all features that we figured out with remote observations. Uh, sulfates, same story. We think there was probably water associated with the de deposition, the formation of those sulfates. Uh, same thing with cemented fractures. The, but but the, the important thing, one of the important things is that if you go over to the right, you'll see something labor, labeled younger strata. These are basically rocks that are, were, were formed and deposited after the time when we think there was a lot of water on Mars. And, and what this will allow the rover to do is basically start down in the region where we think there was a lot of 
wet stuff being deposited, you know, and then slowly move its way uphill towards younger and younger and younger sediments and younger rocks that were eventually associated with a dry time on Mars. So it's essentially the geologist, a geologist does this all the time. You go deeper in rocks to go back in time. Well, Curiosity is going to do this in the opposite way. It's going to start down low and it's going to climb up to younger rocks. And in this case, it's going to cross the boundary associated with the disappearance of, of massive amounts of Martian water. And that's great. So that tells us that we've got a location that's associated with, with this transition. And it's also a, a, a location that we can then characterize the chemistry as it relates to organic materials and minerals and all the things you, needed for, you need for life throughout that period. In other words, for both ancient sediments and modern sediments, sediments that were laid down with or without water. Uh, next slide is a Mini Cooper and a sedan and a rover. This shows you how big the rover is. It's almost as big as a car. That is not hyperbole. It is almost literally, it is literally almost as big as a car. That's another reason we have this complicated EDL, the century descent and landing with the sky crane. Okay? We have a massive rover. It's got a lot of science instruments on it. And, and it's big because we, we had a lot of science questions, which required a lot of instrumentation, which required a drill. Um, and so we needed a big payload to deliver all that science to the Martian surface. And because the payload's big, we can't just bounce it around on airbags like we have in the past. We needed to set it down gently. And, and so that's another reason for the, the sky crane. Uh, next slide, Curiosity rover. This is showing up kind of funky on uh, my version. So I'll, this is another thing I'll try to fix. I apologize to those viewing live. Um, this is just showing some flags from nations that contributed to the rover uh, next to the instruments that they contributed to. Uh, the rover was mostly supported by uh, the United States and by NASA, but it was international. There were a lot of collaborations from other nations. And this also shows a list of the instruments. And, and the last five or ten minutes uh, of, of, this, of my uh, yabbing here is going to be about, about those instruments. So uh, here they are. Oh, this is showing up a little bit better for me now. First, I'm going to talk about MassCam, and I'm just going to give you the brief overview of what each of these is on the rover for. I'm not going to go into, like, technical specs or what the plots are going to look like or anything. More pretty pictures, basically. So MassCam, uh, basically, it's the eyes of the rover. It's, it's how, when the rover sends its first picture back uh, of Gale Crater, that's how we're going to, that, that's what's going to make that image. We're going to get uh, a picture back. And actually, I should, it might be the second, because we might get a, 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 some pictures during descent, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But after it lands, this is going to be the main thing uh, that, that Curiosity uses to tell us what it looks like on Mars. Uh, these, uh, the, the camera, the mass cam is going to be mounted 1.97 meters above ground which means that if you're 1.97 meters, so two meters, so like six-ish feet tall, like let's say you're a human, um, this is about what it would look like on Mars to you in terms of the height of the camera. So you don't need to do any adjusting for scale. What you see on these images is more or less what you would see if you were looking around on the Martian surface. Okay, next, next one is ChemCam. Um, so ChemCam is it's basically a, a remote chemistry kit. If you put on your doc your evil voice and you say you want sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads well we've got a rover with freaking laser beams on its head and and what what chemcam is going to do is it's literally going to shoot lasers at the surface of rocks uh and and activate them activate the 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 compounds in those rocks so that they give off energy in other words we're giving them energy with the laser they're going to give off the energy and when they do that they're going to produce um they're going to they're going to give off photons which we can then observe 
and that will help us help tell us what chemicals are and minerals are present on the surface. And the cool thing about this is if you think about, you know, you take a picture, uh, you're a geologist and you want to know where to go next, the first thing you do is you scan with your eyes. Well, if you then have the ability to sort of uh, shoot a scanner at all the different rocks you were looking at to figure out which ones were the, the ones you were really looking for, you might be looking for a specific type of water-created mineral or something like that. ChemCam will help you do that. It'll help you zero in on the specific rocks and minerals and, and features that you want to do detailed analyses on. Uh, it's sort of like a survey or a scout-type instrument, which is it's just amazing that we're doing. I mean, we're, we're sending a rover that's going to be shooting lasers out of its head on Mars. I can't, I mean, I, I just can't grasp that sometimes. Okay, next instrument or next set of instruments, Molly, APXS, brush, drill, sieves, scoop. Um, brush, drill, sieves, scoop, I'm not going to talk about too much on, a, on their own slide. They're self-explanatory. They're the only things uh, other than high-gain antenna on this slide that aren't acronyms. So when, you, when I say brush, and you think, is that like stand for something? No, it's a brush. Same thing with the drill and the sieves and the scoop. These are things that are going to be used to acquire samples. And those are going to be mounted on the end of, a, of an arm, a robotic arm. And <clears throat> Molly and APXS are two other instruments, mount actual science instruments, mounted on that arm along with the brush and the, the drill and the scoop. Okay, So uh, those are shown, up, uh, the, the actual instruments or, or models thereof are shown on the next slide. Molly is a hand lens, and uh, think of it as a smartphone camera mounted on the end of the robot arm. And, and one diff a couple differences between Molly and, and the regular camera. One is that Molly is on the robotic arm, so like if the rover needed to take a picture of itself or its undercarriage it's, uh, or, or something under the rover, it would be able to do that because it was mounted on the robot arm. If, if it wanted to like look over something, it could stick the robot arm up, and I, and I think it could get a, a higher purchase for Molly than it could for the mask cam regular camera. And then finally, Molly has a, uh, the ability to see things closer up. It's, it, it can focus on near-term near items. And that's where the, the hand lens comes in. It can, it can get real up close and personal to a, a, a rock sample and the same way a geologist would. If a geologist, once you figure out where, what, what outcrop you're going to, once you figure out which layers of rock you're going to look at, you go up and you get out a hand lens and you look at it uh, magnified. And that's, that's the science thing that Molly is doing. APXS is uh, an X-ray spectrometer. It's going to look at elemental chemistry. And we actually had one of these or have one of these uh, on the two MER rovers. This is a more advanced one. It's got a uh, better signal to noise, which means it's, it's more sensitive. Um, and it's, it's basically going to tell us the elemental chemistry at the, the surface that the robotic arm is placed up against. Uh, next slide is RAD. RAD uh, is for the radiation detector, and this is going to be telling us all about all kinds of radiation uh, on the Martian surface. And it, it actually does a little bit more than that. We turned this on um, while MSL was in transit, and it was doing science basically, well, for, for major portions of its, its flight from Earth to Mars. And it actually was able to monitor a solar flare event. We had a solar flare event that we were, we were worried about the health of the rover, but we also were a little excited because it gave us some opportunity to do science on the way because we got to monitor what the radiation environment would have been like to astronauts um, if they were going to Mars and a solar flare happened. Um, what the radiation uh, environment would be like for that crew. And that, this is a way to measure that, and we, we did that. Uh, and so there's preliminary results out from MSL slash Curiosity already. Uh, but it's also going to be active on the surface, and it's going to tell us not just about how much radiation there is, but what types of radiation uh, are hitting the surface of Mars. 
The next instrument is Dan. Dan is basically, I, way back at the start of this talk, I was talking, I said you could look for hydrogen atoms in the subsurface of, of Mars. And that's one of the ways we can look for water, or, or at least the molecule H2O, if not liquid water. Well, you can also do this not just from orbit, but, but in person. And, and so what you can do is you can look for these hydrogen atoms at a much higher resolution in the subsurface of Mars as the rover is driving around. And, and if you find those hydrogen atoms, there's a good chance that's associated with liquid water or with, with frozen water, with ice. And so I, I like thinking of Dan as, as the divining rod for, for MSL. It's basically, you know, the, the Y stick you walk around with in the woods when you're looking for underground water. Um, and that's, that's what Dan is going to be doing. It's just going to be doing it with super high-tech neutron detectors instead of a Y stick. Um, next instrument is Marty. Uh, Marty is the descent data. So these Marty might actually give us our first images from MSL because it's going to be taking a lot of data as the the rover uh, is descending to the surface, and it's doing that both. So the engineers at JPL that design that designed the landing system can get information on how well it went, and what went what right, what went wrong. Um, and, and, and what went as expected or unexpectedly. But it's also going to be uh, fed back into the computers that are controlling that lander uh, on, on board the rover, or the landing from on board the rover. Uh, REMS is the next instrument. Uh, REMS is a local weather station. It's got an anemometer, which is a wind sensor. It's got a humidity sensor. It's got a temperature sensor. It's basically giving you the local weather report um, on Mars. And that's, that's, that's really cool. So we're looking at organics with SAM. We're going to be looking with an X-ray spectrometer at, at the elemental composition. And Kemin is going to look at the mineralogical composition. Uh, and, and, and that's also important for developing both the context for the other analyses. And it's going to be important in its own right because it's the mineralogy that's really helped us nail down uh, some of our best evidence for the history of water on Mars. And if you want to know that history through time, uh, both for ancient and, and, and more modern sediments, Kemen is going to be an, an extraordinarily important uh, instrument. And then finally, my favorite, SAM. Uh, SAM stands for Sample Analysis at Mars. Um, this, this, it is my favorite for many reasons. It was my favorite because I got to actually see this instrument in person. Uh, it is my favorite because uh, the people that I'm now working for, uh, the Planetary Environments Lab at, at the Goddard Space Flight Center, are the ones that built this. It's my favorite because my boss is the PI of the instrument. But it's also my favorite because it's CSI Mars. I mean, this is, if you watch CSI and you see the forensics team do an analysis of what compounds are present at the crime scene, generally they're going to use a mass spectrometer. And that mass spectrometer is going to be the size of like a, you know, a, a, a healthy kitchen table that could seat like, you know, like six to eight people. Well, SAM is that same sort of apparatus, and actually it's a few different types of mass specs, packaged up in something the size of a microwave. And it's going to allow us to examine what organics are present at the Martian surface. And, and these, a lot of these instruments, especially SAM, are going to be interfacing with the drill and with that brush and with the, the scoop so that not only do we just get a, some, some sample at the surface, but we can drill down a little bit and dig down a little bit into the subsurface as well. And that's important. And, and, and this is, now we get into the part where some of these instruments are going to play off one another, right? So you can imagine the rover sitting there on the surface. It uses mass cam to survey the, everything, and then it, it uses chem cam to find out what's really interesting. And then it gets up and close with the robotic arm, 
And, and the robotic arm is looking at the mineralogy at the surface. It's looking at the elemental composition of the surface. And then the drill and the scoop, when they find the really interesting stuff, can, can scrape some of that surface off, put it into SAM and do the analysis. Meanwhile, we know what the temperature and humidity conditions are at the surface as well as how much radiation is hitting it. So we can build this really complete picture, not just telling us what organics are present at the surface, but the environment that's leading to the presence or absence of those organics. And, and then we can start doing some serious chemistry and physics to explain what we are and are not seeing at the surface of Mars. And so, this, I mean, this is, this is the part where I start to get really excited because I'm starting to think about what's going to happen after MSL lands safely. So, but first, it's got to land, and the landing is scheduled for just after 1.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, this upcoming Monday. So that's Monday, August 6th. Uh, if you're on the west coast of the United States, this is going to land just before midnight on Sunday, August 5th. Uh, I will tell you that even though I, I, I think the EDL has really good science motivations behind it, every time I see that video, I get terrified. And so I'm basically going to be a terrified little kitten between now and when MSL lands. Uh, because I really, I'm really, really, really excited about this science and I can't wait for it to start. Um, so that's it. I'm I'm going to stop talking and uh, take questions from whoever is online and follow that. So thanks. I, I, I'm really glad you guys had me out to do this. I love MSL, and I will talk about it whenever I can to whoever I can. Thanks. Thank you, Sean, for a very exciting talk. Uh, I think we're all terrified kittens at this stage for those seven minutes of terror. <laughs> the floor is open. So, Sean, I have a question. Um, so Viking, as you mentioned, was you know floated in the 70s, and most people thought it found no signs of life. Although people have revisited that conclusion, and some of the experiment designers have maintained that it actually was consistent with the presence of life. What are the chances that MSL could give us some sort of uh, similar ambiguous results, where it it's like Viking, where some people can say it's consistent with biology, some people can say it's not. I'm sure it'll obviously lead to further missions either way, but what's your feeling as to how this might guide the search for life in maybe a less ambiguous way than Viking? Well, I think that's, a, that's great. That's a great question. So that, I think the way I'd answer that is, is that no one is claiming that this mission is designed to look for life. Now, it's possible that it could see some things that would be consistent with, with the presence of life, but... Because that's such a provocative claim, even in, like, let, let, let's, let's take the most extreme scenario. Let's say that, that uh, Sam finds some organic material, and it finds some pretty advanced organic material, and it finds out that that has an isotopic fractionation with respect to some of the inorganic material. And, and isotopic fractionation is one of the things that we look for uh, when we're looking for evidence of life. That would be pretty compelling, but I'm not... I'm not sure if the scientific community and the astrobiology community would be convinced that that was really the smoking gun. I, I, I as a scientist, would want more follow-up. Um, there are ways you can fractionate carbon without, uh, without requiring biology to do the fractionation. Um, there are ways you can make organic material. Well, let's be more specific. You can make organic material that has that same isotopic pattern without requiring biology to be making that organic carbon. So I think even in the most extreme case, uh, people are going to want follow-up. Now, are there going to be people that, that will say at some point that, that evidence, or are there, could there be people that say that, aha, 
We found evidence for life on Mars with curiosity. I think there could be people that do that depending on what the results are. But I think the important thing is, and, I, I, and this, is a, this, is, this goes back to Viking, this goes back to the Allen Hills meteorite. The important thing is, is when you're listening to scientists, it's the, 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 group, the person or the group you want to listen to is always the community. You don't necessarily want to trust the opinion of a single scientist. You know, we're all human. <clears throat> we make mistakes. We have biases that we bring to the table. Um, and, and frankly, we're wrong every once in a while. But, but the strength of academic research and the strength of scientific inquiry is when we're wrong as individuals, the rest of the community usually has, almost always has the judgment to see that. And, and the community is very rarely wrong, even though individuals can quite often be wrong. So I guess that I hope that answers your question, Jacob. I think I think there there is the possibility for some controversy along those lines, but I think if we're rigorous as as a community of astrobiologists and as planetary scientists, um, we can avoid that for the most part. Um, and again, this is this mission is not focused on looking for life; it's looking on better defining the habitability context for life. And if, if that question is answered in the positive, in the affirmative, yes, there's organics on Mars. No, the radiation environment isn't too horrible. Yes, there, there is the possibility that there's some near-surface liquid water. Um, then we start thinking about what the next mission is going to be to really maybe look for life at that point and do you know, lab-on-a-chip type experiments or something like that. Great, thanks. Uh, hey, Sean, it's Julia. Great talk. And... Uh, you kind of perked my ears when you said isotopic fractionation. I think you know how much I like those words. Um, I was curious if um, anyone had seen the fractionation of the carbon in the atmosphere on Mars. I'm not aware of that. Anyone else? Or Julia, do you want to talk about it? I'm, I was just curious. I was seeing if, um, because you were mentioning, like, not a lot of organics have been found on the, on the surface. So this is sunshine. I think Sam will be the first to do that, right? It'll be the first since Viking to measure organics, and it'll be the first to measure the isotopic composition. And it'll be interesting to see how it compares to the, the atmosphere. Oh, yes. So I guess your question is comparing it to a, a, an inorganic, a clearly non-biological reservoir. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So one thing that we're going to want to do is not just say, oh, you know, there's this isotopic pattern in this one sample, so it must be life. Um, one of the things you really need to do is you need to determine, a, a fractionation, for those that aren't geochemists, a fractionation is essentially changing the isotopic composition of the carbon atoms when you make the organic carbon. And because it's a change, a delta, um, you need to have that change with respect to something else for it to really be evidence consistent with life. And so you can't just make the measurement on the organic material. You have to have that measurement also made on either the atmosphere, as Julia was suggesting, or you could have it made on some, some rocks. Now, one of the instruments on SAM, it has this uh, mass spec that's sort of geared at organics, but it also has uh, something called the TLS, which is the Tunable Laser Spectrometer. And that's going to be able to measure the isotopic composition of gaseous compounds at the surface. Um, and th this is another example of building on prior results. Mike Mumma is a scientist. At, uh, he's a colleague of mine at Goddard. And he and, and some of the folks in his lab have uh, reported to have found methane in the atmosphere of Mars. 
well, if methane and, and it's transient and it's uh, it might it might have some spatial and temporal variability, it might be you know different on different places of the surface in different times or seasons. If that's true, one would like to know if that methane, which could be made by biology, has an isotopic fractionation with respect to other atoms in the atmosphere uh, that would be consistent with biology. And this tunable laser spectrometer, which is part of SAM, uh, is going to be able to look at the isotopic composition specifically of methane. And so we're going to be able to, to look at things like that, assuming there's, there is some methane there. So we're, the, the, the team is going to be looking at the isotopic composition of the atmosphere, to answer your question. The methane on Mars is pretty controversial in itself, but I do hope that they find some. Yes, and, and uh, yeah, it is very controversial, and I'm looking forward to these measurements for that very reason. Thanks, Sean. Sean, I guess I have one uh, again. Um, in, in your slide number 12, you showed the timeline of the Mars missions, which is unfortunately very different than the one that Steve Squires showed last two year, three years ago at LPSC. Um, in particular, there is missing MAX-C, which was the first step of the sample return. Is that completely off the table now? My understanding is that uh, uh, MAX-C, or, or what's also been called as Mars sample return, is not going to fly this decade, uh, th this decade being, you know, between now and 2020, unless something changes. So currently that the plan is for that not to fly. Um, and so the next, what the next thing on Mars is going to be is not currently known. Uh, that 2016 and beyond part of the slide that Sanjoy was referring to, it says Mars, Mars future planning underway. And that's, that's where we're at right now. We do not know what the next Mars mission after MAVEN is going to be. <clears throat> MAVEN, for those that don't know, is, is launching next year. Uh, and MAVEN is going to look at the history of atmospheric escape from Mars. If Mars was once wet, it must have had a thicker atmosphere. Where did that atmosphere go? Major, major, major question to understand the history of Mars. And MAVEN is a mission designed very specifically to answer that question. But after Maven, we don't know what's next. It, uh, it could end up being a lander. It could end up being a rover. Uh, it could end up being uh, an orbiter. I, I think the most likely case is that it's going to be an orbiter or a stationary lander uh, based on the budget profiles that people have been talking about. But we don't know. Uh, there, there have been a lot of ideas thrown around on what, what should happen next. Even though we don't know, people are talking about it. It's not like, oh, we don't have a clue. People are making decisions about that based on our current budget profiles, and they're trying to figure out what's next for Mars. And frankly, uh, given where we're at today, it might make sense to, to see what's, what, what Curiosity finds before we make some of those decisions. So, Cool. Thank you. Well, that kind of brings us up to time. Sean, I wanted to thank you again so much for taking the time to speak to us, and Mark for introducing us to the Bière de Mars. I would like to invite all of you the next first Thursday of September at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern U.S. time uh, for the next installment of Beer with the Marvel Space Institute of Science. Thank you all so much. Take care. Thank you, Sean. This was awesome. The part that you were describing, like what's going on with the video in the background, that was totally orgasmic. It was amazing. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you.